0: People value what they pay for. And so one, if you're not charging people for things, they're so much less likely to take action. I can't remember what the real number is, but it's mid double digits. The increase in likelihood of you taking action if you have money on the line, aka instead of alignment or not. In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur, Jeff Gotthelf, will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf.
1: Contrarian thinking, it sounds Like you're just going to do the opposite of what everybody else does. But with a purpose and with focus and with determination, it can change the course of your career and your life. On this episode, I speak with Cody Sanchez, who's made an entire career out of contrarian thinking, looking for investment opportunities where others ignore, looking for life opportunities where others have chosen not to go, and ultimately, creating an amazingly unforgettable forever employable career take a listen folks welcome to another episode of forever employable stories this episode is super exciting like all the others they're also also super excited but this one is particularly interesting because on today's episode i have as my special guest businesswoman, investor, writer, and advocate for unconventional and contrarian wealth opportunities, Cody Sanchez. Cody, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled that you're here, and I can't wait for folks to hear your story because it's interesting, lots of twists and turns, and it's got lots of lessons to take away. But before we jump into kind of what you're up to today, let's start with the story and how you got to where you are today in a relatively short amount of time. You started off as a
0: reporter, right? Yes, that's right. I was writing about drug smuggling and human smuggling along the U.S.-Mexico border. That was like 2007 and 2008. And then I went into finance after that.
1: We'll talk about that transition. So how do you go from like writing about drug smugglers <laughs> and human traffickers to be like, oh, I'm going to go into finance now?
0: Yeah, you know, at the time, I wrote a couple stories that received some pretty good press. Namely, uh, we won the Howard F. Buffett Award for Print Journalism, which is Warren Buffett's son, and the JFK Award for Print Journalism. We were writing about people that were left behind along the US-Mexico border, essentially. So they were really gripping, kind of heart-wrenching stories. And at the time, I, I really started to feel a little bit like there was no purpose to telling these stories. Like We wrote about these terrible, awful things that were happening, and then nothing, right? Kim Kardashian gets divorced and everybody's focused on that and not what's happening in the world that's maybe a tad deeper, which I get. And so anyway, so at the time I was feeling a little bit, a little bit lost. And I started talking to one of my professors at the time, my law professor. And we basically came to this conclusion that, you know, what's the difference from my last name, Sanchez, and, you know, a last name like Sanchez that was on that side of the border. And it wasn't necessarily our, you know, ethnicity or being from one country or the other. It was, did we have access to capital? Did we have access to money? And did we understand that language? The only language that everybody speaks across the world, the green one. And so at that point, I realized, no, I don't speak the language. And if I actually want to make change, I probably need to understand it. And so I ended up going and interviewing at a bunch of firms in finance and landed at Vanguard and then sort of climbed my way through the ranks of a bunch of big asset management firms, investment banking firms. And then finally built my own businesses and, and exited a few of those.
1: Okay. So one of the interesting things that challenges a lot of folks that listen to this podcast is why leave a great job? It sounds like you were doing pretty well. You're, you're climbing the ranks. Why exit? Exit full-time employment. Why even try that?
0: Yeah. All of us have inside of us that thing that we're supposed to do, or maybe a few things we're supposed to do inside of our lives. And we can either learn to, you know, smother it and keep going forward with whatever's in front of us, or it's an insatiable little itch that we can't stop scratching, right? And I was the latter, not the former. And so, you know, I did two years or so at multiple firms, like Vanguard, Goldman Sachs, State Street, First Trust. And each time I think I was looking for a way to scratch the itch, and I didn't realize, hey, I, I was put here to sort of, learn in all of these institutions but I wasn't put here to live my whole life within them. And so the moment that I stopped learning and the moment that I thought it was not interesting any further, I would look for what what was the next area that sparked my curiosity until finally it was no longer possible to scratch the itch by being in somebody else's company. But it took me like 12 or 15 years to get there until finally I had enough courage to say, "Okay, I'm going to start this thing on the side," which was a blog for me. And I'm going to do it simultaneously with working 60 hours a week or whatever I was doing. I was running ahead of a lot in business at the time. And I'm just going to do it because I can't not do it because I need to write this thing. And if your people haven't read the poem by Charles Bukowski, it's called On Becoming a Writer, something to that effect. Beautiful. And basically talks about if you can't live, but for the want of it, if it's a fire inside of you that you cannot do, but for the sake of breathing, then do it and so i think that's what we all have to find is what is that thing that you just keep turning back to even if it makes you no money
1: that's amazing and super inspirational and i like what you said there like i mean at some point if you don't feel like you're growing if you feel like you're stagnating if you feel like you've stopped learning then maybe that's a sign and that's a signal that it's time to take the next step and to and to step out and look i like what you did like you were working full time i'm going to figure out how to make this transition and i'm going to do it simultaneously we talked About that a lot in the book Forever Employable and other podcasts as well. A lot of folks who have done this well have begun to do it simultaneously with whatever other thing they were doing. And then eventually the balance shifted from the old thing to the new passion, the new, you know, forever employable path, which is impressive. And so today you're building a name for yourself and an audience around Investing, investing strategy. And it's an interesting investment strategy because it's unconventional. You call it contrarian investing. Tell us a little bit more about that investment strategy and why go down this particular path.
0: Well, I think in anything in life, you have to figure out where you can have your unfair advantage. And so for me, I'm, I've never been smart enough, I think, to beat everybody else in the most crowded of spaces. Instead, I'm looking for where is there less of a crowd? that for some reason I have unique access or insight into. And so if I look at my career, I was always looking for those. It was like, okay, well, first it's going to be an exchange traded funds because that was a new market. There weren't a lot of people in them yet. And I could be new and one of the first movers and have an unfair advantage. And then the second market was Latin America, which is I speak Spanish. My family's from Spain. And so I could go and build this asset management business in Spain. Was there competition? Yes. But was it as bad as building a business in the US? No. So that was the second one. And then cannabis... Was the third. And that was, you know, there's this market that has massive stigma. And I think I can go into this market because the narrative's wrong and the numbers are actually really interesting. And so I'm always looking for where is the difference between the narrative and the numbers so big that I have an arbitrage opportunity, AKA, I can make money because what people are saying doesn't match up with reality. Once you can recognize those ripples or those echoes, you see them in a lot of places. And so That's sort of the strategy that I talk about is when everybody's going left, doesn't always mean you should go right, but it means you might want to look right and see what's over there. And so if you can train your brain to do that, I think you can be really successful. And so the thing that I talk about a lot now is, you know, everybody's talking about these big, huge Silicon Valley companies and building the next behemoth and the unicorn. But the truth of the matter is that people who actually do that are like the 0.001%. Whereas most of the rich guys next door, they own sprinkler companies or contracting companies or automobile repair shop companies. And it's these boring businesses that if we could invest in them, just about anybody could do it and you could have a really cool, very successful lifestyle, but you don't have to go and create the next Tesla. If you have the next Tesla inside you, go create it, but it doesn't have to be that. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Before, before we record, you and I were chatting something about a friend of mine. Who owns a hundred laundromats? That's his business, right? Yeah, he's not Elon Musk, but you know what? He's living super comfortably. Yeah. It's an interesting business. He's, it's one of those demands that never goes away. People will always have to clean their clothes. Yeah. And he's got tremendous growth opportunity in underserved markets. He and I were talking as well recently as well about a buddy of his who owns gas stations. Right. Again, you don't like this infinite well, that, demand for gas stations. Like, you gas stations are never going to go out of business until, until we run out of gas, basically. Right. And so it's really interesting that like to your point, I think people chase the shiny object, but there are these kind of more boring or as you call them, unsexy businesses that certainly can provide a lot of opportunity for folks. And that's a super interesting investment thesis. So you find this unfair advantage for yourself. and You say, look, not everybody's looking over here. There is clearly a difference between what everybody's saying and what's actually happening. And I'm going to use that to my advantage. Why start sharing that knowledge, right? Aren't you afraid that people are going to steal your ideas or take food off your table?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a scarcity mindset. It really comes down to, do you think that there's a limited number of opportunities in the world or not? I'm firmly in the camp of there's not, there's infinite. And in fact, what happens when you start to share things is a shift happens. I'm a little lazy. And so I don't really wanna chase deals and opportunities. I want them to come to me. The only way to make something come to you is for people to know where you are and where to find you. And you also need these people to know what you're interested in. So I get sent deals to invest in every single day. And people know that I wanna invest in unsexy, boring businesses, and here's the type, and here's where they're located. And so they end up giving me exactly what I would spend hours and hours before searching for. And so I think that's why people build in public. If you're a copywriter and you want to create a business where copywriting clients come to you all the time, yes, you could just go ping a bunch of them or go email or try to sell them, or you could become known for being the best copywriter out there. And then it turns out clients will just find you. And the good thing about it is the more you create... There's this weird thing that happens where like ideas just all, they just have sex with each other. Just a bunch of idea sex, making a bunch of babies. And that only happens when you're building in public. And so you may only have a set amount of ideas right now, but as you put your ideas out into the world, they go back, they copulate and they bring back other ideas to you. And that's sort of the way it's worked for me.
1: That's amazing. And I do have to mention a caveat that, That's part of the prep for the interview that we didn't talk about. And that's exactly the thesis of forever employable, which is instead of chasing the opportunities that you want by building in public, by creating in public, by putting yourself out there and putting your ideas out there, those opportunities start to come to you. They start to chase you because people know what you're about, where you've planted your flag, what you want to be known for, what you want to do and if they know that, then when that opportunity comes up, they go, oh, it's Cody. I got to give that opportunity to her or it's Jeff. I got to send him that lead or or whatever it is, which is tremendous. So it's it's fantastic to hear it coming from you as someone who's done this and has seen the benefits of that. Let's get specific about this. What type of content do you share? And then how do you share it? What tools do you use?
0: Well, I think you should start with the one you're most comfortable with. So When I first started Contrarian Thinking, which was like January of 2020, I did one thing. I had a blog and the blog was in a form of of a newsletter. So I sent out a weekly email. And in that email, I made sure that it was something that I wanted to talk about, that every single week for at least a year, I'd want to write something on this topic. And so I called it Contrarian Thinking because that allows me to be wide, right? So it was anything that I was curious about, anything that I thought the... General populace or the narrative was wrong about. And I started that way. And they started off not that big, 500, 600, 700, 800 words. Now some of the emails are 2,000 words, but originally it started small. I built up an audience from basically each week challenging the way people see the world. And then I started to realize people want ideas and they want these contrarian rants, which we have to this day, but they also want ways that they can take action. And so embedded in my Content is what I'd call a Trojan horse, which is we talk about money, right? So it's cash flow unconventionally and think critically. Those are the two things we do. And the reason I added the cash flow unconventionally model is I believe that if you want to have true freedom, you have to start with financial freedom, then you get to personal freedom, then you get to philosophical freedom. And so I wanted people to be able to get free monetarily so that they could actually get to think differently. Because I think when you're worried about the basics, you don't have the bandwidth or you, know, you have adrenal fatigue. You're too stressed out to think critically and in a broad way. And so the Trojan horse is we talk about money, but the reason we talk about money is because I want people to expand their frame of mind. And if we can get them with the cash, because that's everybody wants to talk about, then we can close them with, now let's have you question everything and what's happening in the world. So I started with the blog and now we have lots of different things. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of people on the blog contrary. Thinking the blog also comes with varying social media channels. We're very big on Twitter. So we do three or four tweets a day on Twitter that are relatively thoughtful tweets. We have Instagram now as well. That's, you know, two posts or something like that a day. TikTok, we do a daily video on TikTok and then we do intermittent posting on LinkedIn. We use sort of the old ad- adage of create once and reuse 10 times. So we take a blog post and that blog post, not everybody wants to read a long blog, so we'll chop it up into varying segments for Twitter. And that'll get rescripted into a video for TikTok. And That'll get reframed into a cool image on Instagram. And so if you're creating one piece of content, in my opinion, you should always be meeting your users where they are and repurposing it across multiple sites.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Really, really brilliant advice. And I think a lot of folks, when they set out to do something like this, they see this as an overwhelming... Amount of work because how can I create new content every single day across seven different channels? And to your point, you don't. You create one piece of content, like you said, and then you repurpose it across those channels in a variety of ways. And then you figure out how to best reach your audiences via those mediums, which is amazing. The question I have for you, and this is really interesting, just from from your own experience of those, you know, you mentioned blog, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, and the newsletter, of course, as well. What's been the most impactful channel for you? What's been the, the most read? or
0: interacted with channel? It's definitely the newsletter. I think every single person should have owned content versus rented content. Rented content is anything on somebody else's social media platform, aka Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, you pick your poison. Owned content is something like an email list or a text message exchange. Something where you can actually, no matter what, connect direct with your audience and there is no filter between the two of you. And so the newsletter is by far the most valuable piece, even though I guess in aggregate across the rest of the social media sites, we probably have more viewers and listeners than we do on the direct blog.
1: You Can't kill email, can you?
0: <laughs> That's right. At least not yet.
1: No, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's been around for 50 years and everyone tries to kill it every year. And still, to your point, it's one to one really is what it feels like and there's no filter. And if I want to respond to it directly to you without broadcasting it to the rest of the world, I can totally do that. And that works particularly well. One thing that comes up for a lot of folks is great. I'll write a newsletter. Who's going to read my newsletter? How did you even get people initially to sign up for a newsletter for yourself?
0: Yeah. So I think that's where you have to Assume the exact opposite of if you build it, they will come. They won't come. You need to drag them kicking and screaming. You have to go find them. And you have to bring them along with you on the ride. And so the way that we did it, if you go to contrarianthinking.co and you search first 10,000 subscribers, basically what I did is I said, in 30 days, I want to hit 10,000 subscribers. I am going to track everything, every single thing I do for 30 days. In order to try to hit 10,000 subscribers. And let's see what works. And let's see what doesn't work. And let's share the findings. this is building in public, right? So I've had this out there for, I don't know, I guess almost a year and a half now, maybe a little bit less. And it goes to show that this is one of our more viewed articles, so you can check it out. But it gives you the exact playbook. And people might say, why would you do that? Why would you tell somebody else how to grow 10,000 email newsletters when it was so hard for you? But the point is, when you give value to people. They can't help but share your message. So the waves that come from giving value to humans means that they become my little ants marching out and bringing along others. So that was a really big thing for us is anything that we do, document the process, and then share it later, good, bad, and otherwise. It also does this other thing. It creates authenticity and vulnerability with your audience. So I tell you, like I posted on LinkedIn this whole thing about hey, I just started this newsletter and it's so great. And then I show a picture of it and it's like one like button. And then I click into the one like button and the one like button is mine. It's like, I was the only person that cared, you know? And so then your audience starts to believe that you just didn't pop out of the womb with 100,000 newsletter subscribers because that's not very relatable. But some of the things that I think were biggest from an impact perspective that I did is just I don't have a lot of ego about hard work and putting myself out there. I think a lot of creators... They just want to create. And like I think they get in their own way more than anybody. They want to create content and they want people to just like it. And or they get selfish with sharing and they don't actually add real value in the shares. It's like, I want everybody to look at my outfits while I'm on my yacht, floating in the Bahamas that I rented for the day. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. So I think what I did instead is I basically went out to a bunch of forums. I used a lot of Facebook to start with. And I wrote... Value. I was like, I found this idea that allows you to buy land for ten to twelve thousand dollars, put tents on it, and make rent of about twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a month. So you actually have your land paid off inside of a year, and then you cash flow fifteen hundred dollars net on a piece of land. And so I would break down that idea for people. I'd just drop it in groups that cared about things about finance, and then at the bottom, I'd say, if you have more questions or more information, I can drop the newsletter that I wrote more detail about if you guys want. But I wouldn't even do it in the first one, and so I must have done that for like a couple weeks straight. And then people would get used to me posting these things in other people's rented audiences, and they would look for the link at the end. And I got hundreds of subscribers that way.
1: Amazing. And again, this this is the thing, right? At the end of Forever Employable, I talk about giving it all away, and a lot of folks really panic at that. They're like, "Why would I share my expertise? It's, It's hard earned. I've spent decades learning it, honing it." building my expertise and making myself uniquely valuable so they perceive with it. But the end result is exactly what you're saying is by giving people value, they come back for more and they take your message and they bring it out there and then they bring you the kind of opportunities that you're looking for. It's brilliant. And again, that just being honest, right? Not just coming out and being like, hey, I nailed it. First time out, I was so good. You guys missed it. You weren't there but I was awesome. right? It's ridiculous. right? Nobody buys that. Nobody buys that. But when you come out there and you're like, look, I came out there, man, did I fall on my face. It was awful. But here's what I learned by falling on my face. And the next time I fell on my face again, but it hurt less. And then so you're kind of building up that thing and it validates other people's journeys as well. And then that is truly valuable. Well done on that. Let's talk a little bit. So we've talked about your investment thesis As far as the content, do you monetize the content? And if so, how? Does the newsletter generate income? Or uh, I know you put on a conference. Is that income generating? How do you monetize the content?
0: Yeah. Let's see. For the first year, I didn't monetize anything. I was doing another job. I was paid well for what I did. I was a partner at a private equity firm. And so I didn't really need it to make money. But then about a year plus in, I felt like we had given enough value. We had tens of thousands of subscribers. And I was just learning about things like content monetization through Substack, through having a paid premium newsletter. And so I was like, I think we could charge for this. And I think this could become its own business. And that would be great because for the first year I did it all by myself. So I'm like editing, writing, researching, graphic design. I mean, nightmare, nightmare. And then, so I'm like, if nothing else, I would like this to make enough where I can have a team that does some of the stuff and I can focus on what I really like to do, which is write the newsletter and what we really need, which is grow the newsletter. And so so we created a premium product and it was a premium newsletter, which is still what we have today. It's called Contrarian Cashflow. And it was based on this idea that the average millionaire has anywhere from 11 to 12 streams of income. Except the problem is is that the average human in the US, 90% of people in the US have one stream of income, only one, that's usually their salary. And so there's a huge gap that I said, if we really wanna get people to financial freedom, We have to show them all the different ways you can get to financial freedom. And then with all those hows, they can pick a few of them. So the premium newsletter is a very cheap subscription. It's $399 a year, and they get access to 12 playbooks a year that tell them how to get additional revenue streams. So you might have one that's like that glamping story I told you. Here's exactly what you need to do if you want to copy this. There's one on how to create a newsletter. So there's an actual, like basically mini course. How do you do exactly what we did to create our now seven figure newsletter business? And so the idea is that they get to take the ideas and run with it. So that was the first product that we created. Now we have a community as well. And that community actually will be more expensive maybe by the time this goes live. Because you also need to take your readers sort of through a journey, in my opinion, you get them to buy something with you first so that they start to see the value that you give. And then you get them to buy something else from you to to actually follow through on the journey. It's hard. People will get as part of the membership. A lot of people will act, but more people will act when there's a community of other people around them doing at the same time, which is why we have the community group. And then we have the conference, which we had 225 people or something like that come to Austin to listen to our sort of motto is civilize the mind, make savage the body and build the bank account. And so... We had three tracks that sort of focused on those things. And, you know, those are all profitable ventures now, even though we gave a lot of money away to charity.
1: Yeah, super impressive. And again, really thinking through that. And so then it's interesting because the monetization of the newsletter is an interesting challenge for a lot of folks. Like, how do you decide this is going to be free? This is going to be premium around that and really making that division I think it's tough. How do I decide which parts of my wisdom are less or more valuable than others?
0: Super interesting. I think that people need to get out of their heads on that. And I say that to me too, because we're right now changing some of our products because we, candidly, when I first came out with it, we were just really inexpensive. And then I realized, you know, people value what they pay for. And so one, if you're not charging people for things they're so much less likely to take action. I can't remember what the real number is, but it's mid double digits. The increase in likelihood of you taking action if you have money on the line, aka instead of alignment or not. So one, if you are not charging your audience, you're doing them a disservice. If you think what you're doing is something that they should act upon. Then two, if you charge more for the product, you're going to get people who are more serious. And you know, there's a tweet we did the other day that was like $50 client, Emails every day asking for something. $500 client, more likely to get a refund. $50,000 client, where can I send the money? The more that you sort of make people understand the value that you believe is in this, the less likely you're going to have a pain in the butt as a user base. And so, unless you're this huge platform, and even with ours, you need to be a huge platform to be able to sell really cheap products. Instead, build those thousand true fans are really going to buy what you're selling and take action on it and then charge more to those people because that's the audience that you actually want to serve.
1: If, if I had a nickel for every time I've said to myself and to other folks, people value expensive things, I'd be wealthy. <laughs> people do. People do value expensive things. And you're absolutely right. I've seen it firsthand myself is people don't take things seriously when, it, when they're free. But when, if they have to actually put down some money, and especially a lot of money, they're going to show up and they're going to pay attention and they're going to take notes and they're going to act on that. I do have one interesting clarifying question. You talked a bit about community. And one of the things that's interesting about community is I think a lot of folks are thinking about that and they're saying, okay, great, maybe I'll end up kind of building a forum or a community of like-minded folks. From a time commitment and an access perspective, right, if we're looking to build financial freedom and then eventually sort of the freedom to sort of do whatever I want with my time, Community is tough. Community takes a lot of effort, and if people are paying for access to you, they want you to be there. They want you to be available.
0: How are you balancing some of that? Uh, It's such a smart question, and one that I think you have to obsess on a little bit, because the whole reason we talk about this is to stop trading your time for money. Who was it that wrote that book about climbing the Pacific Crest Trail? I can't remember. Best-selling book, incredible success, and somebody emailed her basically saying, can I get a meeting for you with coffee or whatever? And she was getting a lot of emails like this. And she finally read let and she was like, why do I not have the time to do this? Or why am I having a weird feeling about it? She was like, you know what? It's because I gave them the best of me in the book. What's left for the coffee meeting is not the best of me. I gave them the best. And so that's what I like to try to think about. The best of me is in my content. The best of me is in there. And this belief that, one-on-one time with me is more valuable is absolutely wrong because I haven't prepared for that time in the same way and I haven't engaged with that human in the same way that I've obsessed on the content that I'm delivering. So one, I think it's a narrative shift for yourself. The most valuable thing that I can do for people is create incredible content. Then the second thing is when you're creating community, I think you're absolutely right. You've got to figure out what fuels you and what doesn't. So how my community works is we have four calls a month. And I'm on one of those calls. So I'm committed to one call a month with the community. Then there's another one that's an interview with a subject matter expert that's related to building these cash flowing businesses. My COO handles another call. And then one of the community members gets on and talks about something that they're executing on another one of the calls. I end up kind of tagging into more calls than that because I actually like them, but I didn't want to be tied to it. I want to be tied to one call a month because I want to be close to the community. And I wanted to see what's going on, but even one call a week seemed like too much to me. I think the hardest part in doing this is the bigger that you get, and I'm there in some ways, the more people, like you said, expect something. And so massive boundary setting is necessary. Well, first of all, you cannot get an hour of my time for any price, it doesn't exist. I don't care if you want to pay me $100,000, I don't do it. Not possible. The only way that somebody will get an hour of my time is if I want to do a podcast with somebody like this, or if I choose to, but nobody, nobody can pay for it. And we tried to do, we said at the beginning, like I put like something on the, on the website, which anybody could do to start with, which is like, just put a big number for me. Originally, I think it was like 3000 or $5,000 for an hour of my time. And that resets the clock. So then if somebody says, can I pick your brain for coffee? You say, Hey, sure. Absolutely. Here's the link to this. What's fascinating is how few people then will follow up. And you can always say, I do this and I give 50% of it to charity. So I'm very particular about making sure that I charge for every hour. And if you're giving 50% of it to charity, then it doesn't feel selfish, maybe from the other person. You can get over your own hump. But I would say you really have to obsess on not giving people too much of your time. And it gets really hard with partners. And I struggle with that sometimes. The more you grow, I have 25 businesses. And so all of my CEOs are actually the ones that want my time all the time. And I just don't have time for everybody. And so I have to sort of painfully pull back the amount of time that I will spend on any given business. But what's incredible that happens when you do that is you realize, wow, I free up these people to not wait on whatever they think I'm going to tell them each week because the best of me is in the content and the best of me is in the information that I give them, not in our one-on-ones. And so that has been my key thus far.
1: That's fantastic and really, really excellent advice. I've learned that lesson as well too. I get a lot of these, hey, can I pick your brain type of emails? And yeah, no, I don't sell hours, right? And that's just not, like single hours, it just doesn't work that way. And it's not not valuable for anybody in the long run. This has been full of such amazing gold for folks listening. So I wanna close with one last question, Cody, And then we'll wrap this up. If you had to pick one thing, one thing to share with folks who are looking up to you, they're hearing your story, they're super impressed, and they should be, and they're wondering how to take the first step to become forever employable, what they should be thinking about, what would you say? What's the one thing that they should take or the next, the first
0: step they should take or something they should be thinking about right now? I'm a huge proponent of a newsletter. And I think you should also not watch what people say, but watch what people do. So, if I told you that the most impactful thing that you could do right now is create a YouTube channel, but I don't have a YouTube channel, that's confusing. So, the most impactful thing you can do, I did, and I still am putting most of my money, which is a newsletter. I think it is the lowest ROI on your time. I'm sorry, the lowest cost on your time and the lowest cost to produce, but the highest ROI on your potential and eventual monetization. And so, I would start a newsletter today and We actually created a course, if anybody wants to, it's on our website, ContrarianThinking.co. It's about how to create a seven-figure newsletter, but you don't really need that. I mean, you can go take our blueprint for sure, but there's so much free resources about how to start and create a newsletter. You can literally do it in three to five clicks on Substack or Ghost, two platforms, and start writing about something that interests you. And then remember this tagline, whatever it is today does not have to be what's written on your tombstone. So start with what interests you now, and then you can iterate. Just remember that Jeff Bezos built the world's biggest company by starting off as an online bookseller. Where you start now won't be where you are in five or 10 years. So just start now.
1: Love it. Cody Sanchez, thank you so much. This has been, honestly, one of the, the richest episodes of Forever Employable stories that I can remember. I think folks will love it. I appreciate your time. Good luck to you. And thanks so much for being on the show.
0: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great Forever Employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at and let me know.